Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Jan Lindsay, uh, who is a volcanologist and professor at the University of Auckland. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for this. I've always been interested in volcanology, but I actually don't know that much about it. So um, I'm hoping you can uh, provide me with some more knowledge in regards to this. But I know when people talk about volcanology, they just think volcanoes, but obviously there's a lot more to that. Can you just give me a bit more detail into, in terms of what you actually do as a volcanologist? Oh, sure, sure. Well, actually... There are lots of different things that volcanologists do, but it's true that they're all related to volcanoes. So what you said is not not wrong. <laughs> um, most, uh, if not, well, most volcanologists start out um, studying geology or doing some sort of earth science degree and make their way through that process to specialize in volcanology. So it's something, it's not something that you specialize with immediately, normally. Normally you would have um, some background, for example, um, degree in, in earth science or geology. That was my, my path to volcanology was a geology degree, but I was mostly interested in volcanoes. And so that's how I ended up in volcanology. So uh, there are lots of different aspects of volcanology. I'm a um, research volcanologist. So I work at a university. So I'm at the University of Auckland. And so my main job is um, as a professor in the university, which involves teaching, lecturing in geology and also in volcanology, uh, but also research. And my research area is where the volcanology specialty comes in. Um, other people work as volcanologists in volcano observatories where they monitor volcanoes. So they keep an eye on the ground, not literally, but they have instruments that uh, track activity at active volcanoes. So the people that do that in New Zealand are based at GNS Science and GeoNet. So that's our state agency that monitors all the volcanoes in New Zealand. And there's several volcanologists that work there. There are also volcanologists that work elsewhere, not, not in the university system or in volcano observatories. They might work for um, other um, government agencies. Um, for example, we have volcanologists working at NIWA in New Zealand, the, the sort of water and weather agency. And um, for, for example, geotechnical agencies, they might be interested in the geotechnical aspects of volcanoes. So there's a, a whole range of different things you can do within volcanology as well. So I tend to focus a lot on volcanic hazard and volcanic risk and communicating volcanic hazard and risk. So I'm very interested in um, volcanic hazard maps, tools that emergency managers might be able to use to help them be better prepared if there's a volcanic eruption in the future. But I'm also interested in understanding volcanoes from uh, the perspective of looking at their past histories, so going out in the field and looking at all the deposits that um, have been produced at a volcano and trying to find out what that might tell us about what could happen in the future. Excuse me just a second. But there are also people that look at 
um, geophysical aspects. So they might do surveys, geophysical surveys across volcanoes to see if they can work out how deep the magma is, for example. And there are people that do modeling. They sit behind a computer and, and model volcanic processes. So there's a whole range of things. <laughs> people might be interested in the gases, People might be more interested in the rocks. <laughs> People might be more interested in the ash columns that get thrown out of the top. We tend to sort of specialize in one area or another. Yeah. Oh, well, that means that your day is different. Every day is different, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. And for me, um, for me, it certainly is because I've chosen to have quite a broad volcanological focus. I don't I don't um, just have one single specialty. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to volcanology. Well, that's good. So when you go out in the field, uh, what exactly do you do? Do you just, so let's say if you were going to, I don't know, Mount Ruapehu or something. So what would you actually be doing there? I've been to Ruapehu in the past to sample the Crater Lake, for example, um, <clears throat> to go up to the summit and take samples of the lake to see if there are any gases from the magma that might have dissolved in the lake that might give us an indication of whether the volcano is primed for, for eruption or not. So it depends on the focus of what you're going to, to the volcano for. Um, in my case, the project is more like that. There's two sort of aspects that the project might focus on. One is looking at the past activity in the volcano, which would mean I would go to outcrops all over the volcano, describe them in my field notebook, probably take samples, either for dating the rocks to find out how old they are, um, also for geochemical analysis, which is to take them back to the lab to look at their geochemistry. With the geochemistry, we can, we can correlate samples around the volcano. So you might be able to say, um, this deposit on this side of the volcano has a chemistry that's exactly the same as the chemistry from this deposit on the other side of the volcano. Oh, maybe it's the same deposit gosh, that must have been a big eruption. So you can correlate um, <clears throat> deposits around the volcano that way, and you can start building up a bit of an eruption history. And it's you know the same for any volcano, it depends on what you're looking at. So that's one side of what I would be interested in. The other side is looking at the volcano and thinking, okay, if there were an eruption tomorrow, what would happen? Where would the processes go? And how, how might we um, <clears throat> depict that information on a hazard map? So these days, I sometimes go to volcanoes just to talk to stakeholders, talk to uh, people that work there, live there, about the possible hazards from their volcanoes. Right, I see. So does this, from studying volcanoes so much, does your head automatically go to worst case scenario in terms of like a disaster happening if a volcano was no. to erupt okay well that's good <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't because by studying them a lot you realize that there's lots of small activity that goes on in between any big eruptions you know so even at Lake Taupo we all know that there was a big eruption there or several big eruptions um, over the history of the volcano but there have also been lots of small small eruptions and they, they far outweigh not outweigh that's the wrong word because they're smaller and um, they in terms of frequency they happen more often than the big ones but but yeah no it doesn't automatically go to worst case scenario 
Because mm. I've 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 watched and read a bit of stuff about Taupo in terms of if it explodes, what will happen, and I think I've gotten like five or six different variations of what would happen uh, if it did happen. I mean, worst case scenario, right? If mm-hmm. it, I mean, if it exploded, uh, I think or erupted, I should say that there'd be a winter that would affect the entire globe. Is that actually accurate or is that just a bit exaggerated, sensationalized? Well, this it's a good question. Uh, if Topor erupted um, in our lifetime, it's likely to be a reasonably small eruption. And the reason we think that's the case is because we know that big super volcanic eruptions need time to build the magma chambers and to build up the momentum beneath beneath the crust, within the crust. And there's no indication that Topol, that that kind of building magma chamber is happening. We think we would see that. However, you know, if you give yourself several thousands of years or several hundreds of years to start building up a big body of magma that could potentially erupt at the surface, you could have yourself a super eruption sometime in the future. And that a super eruption is just an eruption. Well, just shouldn't say just because (laughs) it's a big big eruption. Um, It's an eruption that has a certain volume um, that, you know, there's only been, um, I believe, one super eruption in New Zealand in the last sort of 30,000 years of that volume. So, you know, they're rare, but if they do happen, they, they are catastrophic. So the Oranui eruption from Taupo about 26,000 years ago uh, generated, um, it was a huge eruption, sent what we call pyroclastic flows um, across a huge area of the North Island of New Zealand. Ash um, was distributed far and wide. There are very thick deposits of that ash in Auckland, for example, if you drill down through some of the lakes and, and craters in Auckland, you can see a big layer of, of that particular ash. And um, we know that ash, if it gets up high enough, that it can travel around the globe and can interfere with our climate. <clears throat> and there have been some big eruptions in the past, like um, in the 1800s, for example, where uh, Europe was sort of uh, had an extended winter because of ash from a big eruption that had circled the globe and, and blocked out the sun's rays and, and interfered with crops growing and that sort of thing. So they can have big climatic, um, uh, you know, influences. The really big eruptions. Yeah. But it's probably going to be the last of our worries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, with those sort of super eruptions, though, you'd have more of a warning, though, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was saying. You'd have some warning. You would see for years in advance that something was happening. The whole area would be starting to elevate and sort of move around. There'd be seismicity. There might be some gases releasing. Gases released. There'd be indications from our monitoring network that uh, magma was accumulating in the crust. And um, so there'd be there will be signs, definitely. Would there be... Uh... The water of, of Taupo, would it would the level of it drop somewhat beforehand? Uh, possibly. 
yeah, or it would come up. It, it, what, what would probably happen is the lake would rise, pushing the, the water up. But it depends. I mean, we're talking an extremely unlikely event. Of course. <laughs> and it's very hard because none of them have occurred in historical times. We don't really know what they would do. We can only infer based on what, you know, looking at past deposits. Um, you know, so it's possible that if the magma came up uh, outside Lake Taupo, that the, the, board, the lake itself might sort of sink as the magma comes out the side. Depends on where the vent is. Often they form ring structures. But the big caldera is, caldera is just the name of the type of volcano that tends to produce super eruptions. And the reason they're calderas, which are basically holes in the ground, is because so much magma is ejected that it leaves a hole in the ground. <laughs> right. And the magma spreads far, you know, it spreads far through these big explosions, as opposed to a strata volcano, which is like Ruapehu or Taranaki, where the, the eruptions are smaller and they tend to form constructional features over, you know, many, many years. So have you had opportunities to speak to the government or the civil defence about things to do within uh, the event of an eruption? Absolutely. Yep, yep. Um, I run a project, I co-run a project called the Devorah Project, Determining Volcanic Risk in Auckland, and it's co-funded by Auckland Council, and we work very closely with Auckland Emergency Management, and it's also co-funded with um, by EQC, the Earthquake Commission. And um, that's one example, but there are several other projects like that and engagements around the country where volcanologists like me have the opportunity to talk to um, government officials and representatives. I'm a member of the NZVSAP, which is the New Zealand Volcano Science Advisory Group sorry, panel, <laughs> and um, we meet um, a couple of times a year to talk about matters relating to our volcanoes, and that's hosted at, at NEMA, the National Emergency Management Agency down mm. in Wellington. So, so yeah, we have quite close contacts with, with civil defence um, or, you know, the emergency management community in New Zealand. Yeah, well, Auckland's a bit of a different one compared to, say, Taupo because it's it's on a volcanic field and you wouldn't have much warning at all, would you? A volcano could just appear. Uh, yeah, we don't we don't really know how much warning we would get. Uh, it's true that it is very different to Topol in the sense that the uh, magma in Auckland is basaltic. So that's what produces scoria. So it's a dark type of uh, magma, whereas at Topol, it's rhyolitic which produces pumice, which is a light type of magma, and they're quite different. They're totally different ends of the spectrum of, of possible magmas. The rhyolitic ones tend to form uh, voluminous, gluggy, and ex gluggy magmas that erupt explosively, whereas the basaltic ones tend to have smaller batches of magma that are runny, so they're less viscous, they're fluid, um, and they don't tend to erupt as explosively. So they're the main differences. And the other big difference between a volcano like Taupo and um, Auckland is that Taupo has a reservoir beneath it. So there is a, a magma reservoir beneath uh, volcanoes like Taupo and like 
Ruapehu, for example, where magma does tend to pond in the same place and then erupt from that place over time. Whereas in Auckland, there's no magma reservoir. The, man, the magma is coming from the mantle, which is the place where it's coming from is about 90 kilometers beneath Auckland. And it doesn't stop on the way up. It just comes up straight from the mantle. We don't know why, it, before you ask the question, we don't know why it suddenly leaves the mantle um, <clears throat> and works its way up to the surface. And every time it, because there's no place for it to pond in the crust on the way up, there's no single vent pathway that's been established to the surface. So it pops up in a different place each time. That's why we have a field in Auckland rather than one big stratovolcano. That makes perfect sense. If that make, does it yeah, make yeah, sense? Yeah, that, that makes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, but in terms from an evacuation standpoint, because Auckland sits on an isthmus, it's got our largest population. If an, evo uh, if an eruption were to happen, I would think that it would be quite difficult to try and evacuate that many people within a short period of time. I mean, let's say if you had a day, you couldn't evacuate yeah. 1.7 million people within no, a day. No, that's a, it's a good question. It's quite timely as well because um, I've just had a, a paper published on exactly this topic. <laughs> I can forward it to you later. Okay, cool. Um, and um, it was by my, one of my PhD students, Alec Wild. Um, and what he did is he said, okay, uh, let's have a look at possible, all the possible vent areas in the Auckland volcanic field and then work out how many people would need to be evacuated across the whole field. Now, the thing about Auckland volcanoes is they're not going to affect the whole of the city. They're tiny, tiny little volcanoes in the scheme of volcanoes. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're quite small. They're tiny compared to, say, a Ruapehu or a, or a Taupo. And the eruptions themselves are also quite small. So it's possible that um, the immediate effects of the eruption will only affect a few kilometers around the vent and then there'll be ash that causes problems further afield. Nevertheless, we would have to evacuate, according to the current contingency plan in Auckland, probably five, five kilometer zone around the vent um, leading up to an eruption. And so he was able to work out that, okay, that. Um, that might, under some circumstances, that might be the equivalent of about 300,000 people. And it might take about 48, 49 hours to remove everyone from those areas, from that area rather, uh, before, um, you know, hopefully, before the magma reaches the surface. That assumes we have enough warning. Yeah, but say, for example, if it happened in South Auckland, then... Auckland is effectively cut off, and so is Northland from the rest of the country. Like you wouldn't be able to go mm. travel south, would you? Because south, there's only yeah. one way in, one way out. Yeah, if we were incredibly unfortunate that the eruption knocked out one of our key motorways, then yeah, we would have issues, and we'd be looking at, um, you know, using ferries and boats and other things to transport people. Uh, it would be challenging. There are some areas in Auckland, you know, where an eruption would cause more damage and um, knock-on effects than others. You know, I mean, if you took out the Harbour Bridge or if it took out the airport, 
um, or it doesn't even have to take it out. It just has to affect it so that it closes. If you can't use those things because there's ash on the runway or there's or it's unsafe to drive because earthquakes have damaged the harbour bridge, you know, or, or cracked a pipeline or something, um, there would be severe knock-on effects. But yeah, it would be challenging. Any future activity in Auckland would be massively challenging because we've built our country's largest city on top of a potentially active volcanic field. So there's going to be, you know, in any given five kilometer radius zone in Auckland, unless it's out in the harbour, you're going to have quite a few people that you're going to have to move. Yeah, I mean, well, you've already seen kind of glimpses as to what can happen just from small little things. So say even COVID, it had a knock-on effect on Northland and you couldn't get in or out. Even with the Harbour mm. Bridge, when that truck got blown mm -hmm. into the, the, the bridge and it was out of commission, it caused a huge amount of uh, traffic and congestion. And a, mm. a volcano would be, well, 10 times as, as bad, I'm sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and there's another challenge too, and that is the uncertainty around when the eruption would be over. You know, um, if it's, say, an earthquake or a truck falling over, well, you sort of know when it's over, <laughs> but, um, or a storm. But with a volcanic eruption, it's, it's very tricky to know when, when it's actually over. Um, I mean, one example in, in the 70s in Iceland, um, occurred on the island of Heime um, in the Vestmanjur Islands and that lasted for about six months and so they evacuated pretty much the whole island. It would be like evacuating a suburb of Auckland and then they spent a lot of time trying to clean up some of the tephra which is another word for uh, little bits of fragmented magma that's been thrown out of the volcano so ash is a type of tephra and you know bits of scoria, they're also types of tephra, anything that's fragmented and thrown out of the volcano. Um, they spent a lot of time trying to remove the tephra from on top of roofs and try, from houses to free them up from roads, trying to remove lava so that they could drive through their roads again. And then eventually people were allowed to start coming back. But, you know, that decision on when to allow people to go back again is a tricky one. You know, they waited for a certain period of time when nothing had happened and said, yep, okay, the eruption's over, everyone can come back now. But what if it wasn't completely over and it started up again, you know, then people would leave again and then chances are people might not come back in that case. And but these are the big decisions that our emergency management community would have to make, um, you know, in the event of a future eruption. So from an economical standpoint, uh, would you advise against having 34% of our population in one place situated there? <laughs> this is probably a very good time to say that the likelihood of a future eruption in Auckland is extremely low in, any, <laughs> in anyone's lifetime. Okay, well, so that's good. So we've only got, we've got about 53 centres in Auckland, over 200 thousand year period so they don't erupt very often um, we can say that the frequency of um, eruptions and pretty much every eruption leads to a new volcano so um, when I say 53 volcanoes that's basically the same as saying 53 eruptions um, 
So we, we know that there's been an increase in frequency over the last 60,000 years, but we're still talking quite a long time period. So depending on how you slice up that time period, whether you take the whole, if you take the whole 200,000 years and say, okay, there's been 53 eruptions and you do some quick maths in your head, it's probably about one eruption every three and a half thousand years. But if you take a shorter period of time where there's been a few more eruptions um, over that period of time, you might be looking at one eruption every thousand years. But um, still, that's not very often. So the chance of anything happening in our lifetime is slim. However, it could still happen. And Rangi Toto only erupted about 600 years ago. So that's very recent in geological time. You know, so I think if we hadn't had Rangi Toto and our last eruption was Mount Wellington 10,000 years ago, we'd be less concerned, we'd still be interested. But the fact that we've got this big, big volcano relative to the other volcanoes in Auckland sitting out there in the harbour that's only 600 years old, that, um, you know, that means that we actually, we have, we have to make a really concerted effort to consider the possibility of a future eruption. Yeah, makes sense. But can't, I mean, an earthquake could trigger a volcano, right? Could you have a knock-on effect where, say, an earthquake could trigger Ruapehu, Taranaki, and maybe a volcano in Auckland at the same time? Or is that very unlikely? They're extremely unlikely. Um, earthquakes can trigger eruptions if a magma chamber is primed to erupt anyway. So the magma has to, has to be eruptable. It has to be ready to erupt. It has to have enough gas in it. It has to be at the right, um, it has to be shallow enough in the crust to be able to make it to the surface. But sometimes there is a trigger for an eruption in places like, uh, sorry, at volcanoes like stratovolcanoes. If you had a, a, a very active magma chamber that's just sitting there and the magma's quite active and there's a huge tectonic earthquake. It could perturb the magma chamber. It could make gases, more gases exolve from the magma and might drive an eruption or it could create a new pathway to the surface, but the magma has to be ready to go anyway. Um, in Auckland, uh, it's, it's less likely that something external will trigger an eruption. However, we don't really know enough about what causes the magma to be released from the mantle at any one time to definitively answer that question because why is it that every one to three and a half thousand years there's a batch of magma that is released from 90 kilometers depth beneath Auckland I mean and that doesn't happen regularly I'm just saying that's on average um, why is that uh, we don't know and maybe there is some big tectonic influence somewhere you know that but it would have to be able to influence the mantle. And most of those sort of tectonic processes, earthquakes, they're a lot shallower. Um, so they're, they're affecting sort of the crust, which may, you know, may be down to about 20, 30 kilometres beneath us. Mm -hmm. With Rotorua being on such a geothermal area, I remember reading, I think it was quite a few years ago now, where a lady was renting a house she walks outside the next morning and a mud pool had just appeared in her backyard out of nowhere. Does that indicate that a volcano could randomly just appear in Rotorua out of nowhere? Uh, not a volcano. 
unless you want to call that little mud pool a volcano. Well, no. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. <laughs> but uh, it's funny. Some people do, though. They, they, there's, um, they call them mud volcanoes in some part of the world if they're big enough because some of those mud pools can be can form actual sort of volcano-like features. Um, but anyway, no, that they are reflecting shallower processes. So... Um, the geothermal systems in that area in Rotorua are certainly related to the volcanic activity. So the heat that drives them comes from magma at depth, um, and sometimes that magma is, um, is sort of dead magma. It might not erupt again, but in the case of that whole area in Taupo, it's very, very hot under the earth, sorry, in the earth, in the crust. Uh, there's very high heat flow, and there's a lot of water, a lot of rain, a lot of um, you know hydrothermal systems. It's not a desert, you know. There's, there's a lot of water. There's pools. There's lakes. There's aquifers, and so the when you heat up water, and if you heat and if it's heated up um, from geothermal fluids from magma, it can have nasty elements in it, and sometimes those elements well, that the, those waters can be corrosive and they can dissolve some of the rocks and mud is basically just dissolved, dissolved up rocks. <laughs> so those mud pools are just bits of, they reflect bits of land that have just been dissolved by geothermal waters. And then you get geysers and you get fumaroles and hot pools and they're all features related to geothermal activity. All and right. we have a lot of them in the Taupo Volcanic Zone of which Rotorua is one of the volcanoes in the Taupo Volcanic Zone. So if you built a house on a piece of land, there is some sort of probability that a mud pool could appear or mm. the, the, <clears throat> the dirt and soil corrodes um, from the geothermal If you're in activity? a place like that, yeah. If you're in a place like that, in Rotorua, where there's a lot of um, geothermal activity, and that's why some areas are, you know, cordoned off, that you, you can't go through certain areas um, because the land is too unstable. It's too, um, too hot. Um, there might be holes beneath the ground that we don't know about. And that's typical for geothermal areas. Um, those hazards, we tend to call them geothermal hazards rather than volcanic hazards. So although they are related to the volcanic activity and the magmatism in general in the area, they're geothermal hazards, so they're shallow, shallow hazards and shallow features. Right. Okay. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, actually, is the whole White Island tragedy. Um, could you foresee that happening? Because whenever I drove anywhere and I saw White Island um, constantly steaming, I never had any interest in going there and landing on it, considering it was always active, like 24-7 mm. smoking. Um, because uh, did you do any research on White Island at any point in terms um, of how I it have, behaves? Yeah, I have assisted in projects, particularly in the early stage of my career. Mm. Um, when I was a research assistant for GNS Science a long time ago, back in the late nineties. Um, yeah, I we I think. We have always known that an eruption could occur without warning at any time. Mm. An eruption like that, like the one that happened at Fakari, um, 
can happen at any time in a volcano that has a shallow hydrothermal system. For example, you could get an eruption like that at Ruapehu or even at Tongariro without much warning. And partly that's because it's the hydrothermal system that's causing the volcano to do a little burp. It's not necessarily magma moving up through the volcano. If it was magma moving up, we would see signs of it on our seismometers, we might see changes in gas compositions, we might see the volcano starting to bulge, and you'd get warning. Best case scenario, you'd get warning. Uh, but the, the, I think the understanding of the Fakari eruption recently is that uh, it's likely to have been a phreatic eruption, we, which means um, only water and steam was involved, even though it blasted out some um, pre-existing rock from the crater area but we don't know for sure because we haven't got samples to have a look at to determine whether there was any fresh magma um, but eruptions uh, in volcanoes like that can happen at any time without warning and that's a, a message that is repeated over and over again and it's um, you know GNS stress that um, and Everyone knows that. It's just that, um, you know, you have to manage it because people want to go and have a look. I've been there many times. I've taken that risk. Um, and I've known that it's an active volcano and that you could have a, a steam eruption at any time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation. Yeah, because, I mean, I saw some of the footage and obviously you see the guide and he's looking at the uh, the, 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 the stuff on the crater and, He's looking at it and he's thinking, this is not right. Um, mm. So, I mean, I don't know if he knew that as soon as he got there or because it had already gone up to like a level two. So I still I still don't understand mm. how, how that happened. It's a bit, bit strange yeah. to me. Uh, did you have yeah. any, did you have any, uh, speak to anyone after that happened or uh, spoke to civil defense? Um, I. I guess I, you know, we've had debriefs with um, NEMA, the National Emergency Management Agency, through the NZVSAP process. So we've had a few, um, well, we had one really good uh, debrief. The Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor was there as well because she was involved in some of the communications that came out afterwards. Right. And we all sort of worked together. Um, and, yeah, and obviously there's a investigation underway at the moment to work out what could have been done better what could have been done differently um, you know GNS science had raised the alert level for good reason there was heightened unrest at the volcano and um, I can't remember exactly what the wording is related to, to alert level two but um, you know as the as alert levels go up each stage um, the risk you know, it's logical that that relates to a, an increase in risk. And unfortunately, the way that White Island is managed, it's a little difficult for um, any one agency to sort of say, this is what you must do. You know, it's, it was private land and the tour operators were um, run, I believe, by iwi and... Then there's the GNS scientists um, that 
you know, they do their business and, and research on the island when they believe that it's safe enough to do so. It's a very complicated, I mean, it's a really complicated governance structure around around White Island. Mm, mm. So, And I'm sure all of that will come out, um, you know, in the investigation. There'll be some really great recommendations for how it can be managed better in the future. When is that due to finish, the investigation? Or does it just well, I think keep, it's is it not, ongoing? I think it's kicking off. I think it, I don't even think it's kicking off until June. It oh, got okay. delayed. Like it was supposed to be in March, but I think they needed more time to gather evidence. Right, so I think right. it's. I think it was delayed, yeah. So does the investigation involve them all just basically landing on on the uh, island? No, and... no, no, no. This is the WorkSafe investigation. Oh, I'm right. Okay. About the, okay. Yeah, the actual criminal, the criminal. Oh, uh, yes. Sorry, okay. I don't know if it's a criminal law case. I can't remember the exact terminology for it. Well, as but, you yeah, said, it's no, quite convoluted. Yeah, <laughs> it's convoluted. And no, I don't think... I don't think GNS have been able to go back to the island um, or, or have wanted to, um, but I know they are carefully considering the hazard and the risk to life should they go back, should they get permission to go back. I mean, one of the reasons they really want to go, and they may have been, I'm just not sure, I'm a bit out of the loop, is to clean off all their equipment because some of their solar panels are covered with ash. They want to clean them so that they can make sure that the monitoring network continues to operate and is fully right. functional. They want to clean up, up the, um, the cameras and they want to, where possible, get a sample of the, the material that came out of the eruption to analyze it. But I, as far as I know, that trip hasn't happened yet. Okay. So... Mm. Could something similar happen at, say, the Tongariro Crossing? I mean, obviously, people do hiking around there mm. all the time, and you did mm -hmm. mention that that can just randomly erupt without mm. any warning. Or do you think because the, it wouldn't be such a complicated process with terms of, in terms of who's managing it, mm. it wouldn't be on the same it's level little, as White Island? Yeah, it's a little more clear-cut because the Department of Conservation has the power to close tracks and they can do that quite rapidly and they have done so in the past and they can put sort of an exclusion area around around the vent. Um, Tongarero did erupt re um, more or less without warning in 2012 from the Tamari crater when people were on the crossing walking past. There's some spectacular photos. <laughs> oh, I didn't no realize. Was hurt. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize actually people were walking there at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep, yep, no, people were there. Um, yeah, I know that because I was hosting a, a, a teacher fellow from the sorry, a intermediate school teacher who was doing a Royal Society of New Zealand fellowship. Um, hosted by me at the university and he had taken a couple of days off to go and do the crossing <laughs> and then the volcano erupted while he was down there oh no thankfully they were all safe but he got some fantastic photos it was like wow i'm doing this internship on volcanology and actually saw a volcano erupt yeah i mean if a, a volcano erupted in front of you i mean the first thing i'd think to is is to run not take pictures i mean because isn't there a chance of like you getting hit by rocks or the well, ash if you were just... close yeah definitely but if yeah. it's just a little ash plume um you know i'm assuming that they were 
moving rapidly away from the volcano at the same time you know (laughs) yeah well Um, it probably depends on how far away they were as well yeah yeah exactly and I can't remember those details but um you know when Ropehu erupted in 19 1996 so sort of the second eruption um I had just finished working at GNS Science I'd worked there for a, a year and a half and I'd finished so I didn't have to go into work that day but I woke up and there was ash falling on my house in Taupo in Acacia Bay and um, ash falling on my car and the first thing I did was jump in my car and drove down to the mountain (laughs) (laughs) everyone else was leaving the volcano leaving the area but I went down and um, booked a flight on mountain air and flew around the volcano to have a close look (laughs) wow that was a bit crazy I wouldn't do that these days I've had two kids since then and I'm a lot less risk averse (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. <laughs> um, I I read uh, well a while back actually, and I remember t- speaking to Professor Ian White about it about how uh, Mount Taranaki is overdue for an eruption, really, or it's due within the next fifty years. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't like using words like overdue because it implies that they erupt like clockwork, you know. But they but Taranaki um, has a I think I think the way they word it um, is has a um, greater than fifty percent chance of erupting within the next fifty years or something like that. So right. it, you know, it's there's a much higher probability that we'll get an eruption at Taranaki, for example, than Auckland. Um, yeah, but that's an interesting one, and we have a big project looking at Taranaki at the moment. Uh, because, you know, there's lots of uh, industry in the area, there's also lots of farming in the area, and there's a possibility that the eruption could go on for some period of time, so people would have to get used to living with a volcano that's sort of puffing away, possibly for many years. Um, It's another one of our big stratovolcanoes. It has erupted frequently in the past. It's also sent ash up to Auckland. It's the most frequent contributor of distal ash in Auckland. So that means if you drill a hole down one of the craters in Auckland, say one of the volcanic craters that preserve sediments and and things like ash from distant volcanoes, if they settle down, for example, uh, Lake Pupuki. So if there's an eruption at Taranaki or Mare Island um, or Rotorua, Tongariro, and and the wind, so we're thinking in the past now, and the wind is blowing the ash uh, towards Auckland, uh, then some of it may land in Lake Pupuki and it settles to the ground and it forms layers on the bottom of the lake. And over time, that sort of gets compressed and then if we come along years later and we stick a drill uh, out on the lake and, and get a core out of the lake, we can see all those layers. And we've, been, we've done this around various places in Auckland. And you can count up the number of times that uh, volcanoes from outside Auckland have dumped ash on, on Auckland. And Taranaki is a reasonably frequent contributor. So that means if there's an eruption at Taranaki, we're likely to be affected assuming that the wind blows the ash towards Auckland and we know that can happen because in the 1995 eruption of Ruapehu our airport in Auckland was actually closed um, for a while because there was enough ash in the atmosphere from Ruapehu in Auckland to warrant 
closure of the airport, which had, you know, huge knock-on effects and economic knock-on effects. Yeah, yeah, these yeah. days the ash in the atmosphere is one of the really big um, disruptors. Well, yeah, <laughs> you can't fly. Option. Can't fly. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And it can circle, can't it circle? Like it goes a it goes a long time before it really evaporates. Or uh, does it, it? Can it? Can it, it circle the globe? If it's if it's if the eruption column is high enough and it gets up into those areas of the stratosphere where um, where air does circulate like that. If it's a, uh, not so high, if the eruption column's not so high, it just settles back down to Earth. Um, sometimes that takes a while, so it can travel for hundreds of kilometers. And you, if you see a picture of a eruption column extending from a volcano, you'll see tra trails of black sort of stripes, wispy black stripes coming out of it, and that's all the ash falling down to the ground, falling out of the column. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Is it because New Zealand sits on a geothermal uh, layer and volcanoes are everywhere, and obviously with Zealandia uh, being submerged underwater, is there any parts of Zealandia that have a volcanic activity that could cause it to rise mm. up above the surface again? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, there are probably some areas, um, certainly offshore Taupo volcanic zone between us and Tonga, where there are submarine volcanoes that we know of to be active. Um, most of Zealandia is old. It's old, and that's one of the reasons why most of it is submerged because if you have a really active landscape like active mountain building processes active volcanic activity that's what keeps um constructional processes going that's what causes uplift in the southern alps because we're on a plate boundary so mm. new zealand where new zealand is in the center of zealandia is where the plate boundary is so that's where all the current activity is focused if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And the, the rest of Zealandia is just the, the rest of the New Zealand landmass that's beneath the sea. And that's all pretty much older stuff. There's no active processes going on to keep constructional forces building up volcanoes and mountains. And um, However, having said that, there are probably possibly um, some hot spots. And we know that there are um, places around... Zealandia that have had um, volcanic fields like uh, Auckland's volcanic field in the past and with hotspots because when I say hotspot I just mean a place where magma sometimes leaves the mantle and comes to the surface to form a little field of volcanoes. <laughs> it's more or less what I mean. Um, so the, the, the mantle's been sourced from the, sorry, the magma's been sourced from the mantle. The classic hotspot is Hawaii. Right. Yeah, the, the magma comes up from the mantle. The, the crust is moving, moving because of continental drift and plate tectonics. And so where that fixed um, magma source hits the surface is a different place over time as the crust moves. That's why there's a chain of volcanoes in Hawaii. 
Um, but anyway, there is evidence for that kind of activity in the past in places around Zealandia. Um, and because we don't know what causes that, well, who knows? There could be something like that in the future somewhere in Zealandia. Mm. But that's as good as I can answer that one. No, that's <laughs> However, right. if there was a if there was a volcanic eruption, depending on how shallow the sea is above it, you know, you could slowly raise up the land. For example, in Tonga, they sometimes have you know new volcanoes pop up, new islands created if they have an eruption. Sort of pops their heads up above the water and then back down again as it gets eroded away again. Yeah, yeah. Makes so perfect sense. A couple of those. Yeah. 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 Well, um, final question before I before I let you go. Uh, in terms of the Ring of Fire, are all those volcanoes kind of interconnected? In terms of like the volcanic field around that. Yeah, around the edge of the Pacific Ocean, they are connected in the sense that they all lie along plate boundaries. So the Earth is divided up into a number of big continental plates. Well, not just continental plates, big plate, crustal plates. And these plates um, all, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. So the earth is basically a big jigsaw puzzle. And these, those plates move um, adjacent to each other in different directions and in different ways, depending on whether you have predominantly oceanic crust or predominantly continental crust banging up against each other or sliding past each other. And around the edge of the Pacific, you've got... Um, quite a lot of what we call subduction zones, which are when one plate dips down beneath another plate. And that happens when one plate is more dense than the other plate. And that usually happens when you have, say, an oceanic plate, which is dense material, sinking down beneath a continental plate, which is lighter material. So that's what's happening off the east coast of the North Island and why we have the Taupo Volcanic Zone. That's why we have a chain of volcanoes all the way from Ruapehu through Taupo, um, Whakari White Island, all the way up to Tonga. That's um, the Tonga Kermadec Trench is where the it all happens. The plate dips down and then when it reaches, when this downgoing plate reaches a certain depth, um, it causes perturbations in the mant in the magma above uh, sorry in the mantle above it which causes magma to rise to the surface and that's why you get volcanoes and you get earthquakes along those plate boundaries and it just happens that all of those areas around the pacific are also on plate boundaries and hence why um, it's a very active area but they're not all the same uh, they're all sort of on the edge of the um, Pacific plate, but the plate boundary conditions are slightly different in different places. Okay, so, so they'd, they'd, never be, can... they'd never be fully synchronized in terms of... Oh, no, they're not no. linked in that way. I, I should have made that a bit clearer. They're not linked in that way. What you could see is sometimes you might see if there's a big earthquake, if there's a big rupture, a, a big plate boundary earthquake, it might um, rupture in several places. Like it might be a, a sort of a reasonably large area that's affected by earthquakes, but right. you wouldn't see a whole lot of earthquakes around the Pacific Rim, go, sorry, a whole lot of volcanoes going off at the same time. They're not related in that sense. They all have their own sort of individual magmatic systems um, and yeah, 
yeah, they're just related in the sense they're part of a bigger tectonic picture, but they're yeah. not related in the sense of sharing magma chambers or anything. Yeah, fair enough. Makes sense. Well, hey, mm. I will wrap up there. Thank you so much for doing this. I very much appreciate it. That's all right. Um, so where can everybody find all your work and everything that you've done? Oh, you could probably um, Google me, <laughs> Jan Lindsay and University of Auckland, and there'll be a there'll be a my web page at the university. That's cool. a good start. <laughs> and your paper, your your paper. Oh yes, uh, I'll send that to you. That's Alec Wild. Um, that's just recently come out in Journal of Volcanology and Geothermal Research. And it's open access, so anyone can can access that. And oh, it's awesome. all about evacuation demand and evacuation difficulty in the event of an Auckland volcanic field eruption. Great. I will read that, and that will give my um, partner peace of mind, because I will know exactly what to do <laughs> if her worst fear is realized. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing to worry about. It's We'll give you warning, and it's very unlikely to happen. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. I think some of those um, volcano films. That's something I'd ask you. Have you actually ever watched a, a, a film, a volcanic film that's kind of realistic? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. No. Not really. <laughs> uh, um, well, Dante's Peak wasn't, which is the one that where they walk on the lava flow. That's really, I mean, although having said that, people are walking on, on um, lava at the moment in Goma, which is quite shocking to me. There are images of, because Nuria Gongo, it's a volcano in the Congo in Africa. It's erupting yeah. at the moment. Spectacular. And there are pictures of people walking on the lava to get to the other side, um, which is uh, terrifying. That's very, very dangerous. Um, yeah, I think they, in some of those movies, they drive on the lava and they, they go out on, oh, they, and they have like boats going out on acidic lakes yeah yeah i think i think <laughs> the only stuff. ones i think the only ones i've watched are dante's peak and volcano volcano and yeah, yeah yeah and i i think there, there's a specific scene in volcano where i think a guy he's he's got this guy on his back and he's trying to get out of a train and it, there's lava underneath the train and everything's melting and he's somehow <laughs> able to walk and he's not burned to death it's 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 a bit it's a bit <laughs> yeah it would <laughs> be very hot yeah. Those lava flows can be like a thousand three hundred degrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they when they come when they first come out of the ground. So yeah. Okay. It's, um... <laughs> so that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they haven't done a realistic one yet. Oh, I'm just trying to rack my brain. Possibly that's I think there's one called Super Eruption, which is more of a docudrama. Oh, okay. And I think that one's more realistic. Um yeah, because it's a bit of you know, bit of has a documentary flair to it as well. Right, right. But please, I'm not sure. <laughs> I know it's been so long since I watched them. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for doing this. I'll uh, I'll let you go and get back to what you were doing. But um, thank you so much. Um, and that thank is you. my pleasure. Yeah, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe.